This is Healthy Rounds with Dr. Anthony Alessi, sponsored by St. Francis Hospital and Medical Center, Covaris, Ranchford Eye Center, and the Connecticut State Medical Society. Healthy Rounds provides general information regarding medical conditions and diseases. The information is not intended to create a doctor-patient relationship. You are encouraged to consult your own medical provider for advice that applies to your own medical care. And now, Dr. Anthony Alessi on WTIC News Talk 1080 and WTIC.com. Welcome to Healthy Rounds, a show that provides you with up-to-date medical information and we answer all of your health questions. I'm your host, Dr. Anthony Alessi, and it's great to have you on this uh, post-Thanksgiving weekend. I hope everyone had a healthy holiday and enjoyed the food and uh, had a great time with family. Looking forward to today's show. You know, a few weeks ago, we chatted with Dr. Isaac Moss from the University of Connecticut from the Comprehensive Spine Center. And we never got off the topic of low back pain. I never got to the topic of the cervical spine. That's the spine higher up in your neck where the spinal cord lives. And that's where you see the injuries that result in quadriplegia and things such as that. And we wanted to get to that. So I brought his partner in today. So later on in the show, we're going to be chatting with Dr. Scott Malozzi. Dr. Malozzi is an orthopedic spine surgeon, and we're going to be talking about the neck and cervical spine and injuries to that, treatments for neck pain, what causes neck pain. And we're also going to be taking your calls. Let me give you the phone numbers now, 860-522-9842 and 1-800-966-9842. That's 966-WTIC. Now, if you're a little shy about coming on the air, you can text me, actually email me at info at alessimd.com. We also have Twitter at, at Dr. Alessi. So anyhow, we'll get to your questions and a great conversation. Some topics to bring up. This week, you're reading in the press that the state of Connecticut, once again, kind of tripped over itself here. And that is regarding the field of telemedicine. If you listen to this show regularly, we've talked a lot about telemedicine, meaning the ability to do evaluations through a computer, particularly people who have, are in rural settings, sometimes people who just can't get to the office. You know, we have a lot of problems with Medicaid and Husky right now with transportation, right? The tra We had a new transportation system. People can't get a ride and they're not able to get to the office. So there is a project sponsored by the federal government in which people who have Medicaid or Husky will get the visit paid through telemedicine. Unfortunately, the state of Connecticut was the only state that didn't apply for these funds. So all our congressmen and senators are in an uproar saying, why did we pass up on this? So we have to get on this. I think the, the excuse was it's, it's a lot of work. It's a lot of paperwork. I'm sure it is. But I can tell you, I did an evaluation this week uh, from UConn on a patient who lives in Alberta, Canada, okay, and needed care, got in touch with us. And I just dial in through a HIPAA secure line through Skype. I was able to do an evaluation on this young man. And I'm able to make referrals now to my colleagues in Canada who need to follow up with him. So I'm able to direct his care. And that's how we develop an international reputation for our university. 
So with that, while we're out there doing international work, we should be able to take care of people within our own state. And this really helps for people with psychiatric problems. You know, those interviews that you have to go to the office for, people with addiction problems. So uh, I'm hoping it's going to get rectified because telemedicine is the future, no matter how you look at it. Another thing we come up on, and this is unfortunately more and more, you realize how many people are flying now? We think by the year 2036, it's going to, we have about 4 billion people a year are passengers on airplanes. And guess what? Those passengers are getting older. Have you seen the number of wheelchairs lined up getting on a plane or waiting for people to get off a plane? So guess what often happens on an airplane? Somebody gets sick. So it was an interesting article because is there a doctor on the flight? And the question is really interesting. Between 2008 and 2010, there were 11,920 medical emergencies on flights. Now, fortunately, we now have an air-to-ground service that is run uh, by, actually, the Mayo Clinic, I think, is one of the biggest providers of this. So you you can call in air-to-ground for a medical consultation, and that's reduced the uh, number of diversions. It's an interesting history to air travel. In the 1930s, only nurses were allowed to be flight attendants. You had to be a registered nurse in the 1930s. So they realized flight was a little bit dangerous. Um, 50% of all in-flight emergencies, interesting, are neurologic. Typically a loss of consciousness, seizure, uh, stroke, headache, things such as that. Well, here's the interesting part, too. The Aviation Medical Assistance Act of 1998 was passed, and that protects medical providers from liability if you provide care on a plane. I have asked to, been to, asked to do it probably about three times um, in my career. Uh, never did we have to make an emergency landing, fortunately. So it is interesting that physicians can and should respond when something happens on a plane and not feel like, oh my gosh, I might get sued. By the same token, using these air-to-ground services are also important. But a lot of things can happen in the air because you are obviously at high altitude, different pressures. So it's important to know that there is a blanket of safety available when you're on an airplane. One of the other things that came up is I uh, wanted to chat a little bit about is the latest chicken pox outbreak in North Carolina. 36 students in a private school, a Waldorf school, ages 4 to 11 years old, have now contracted chicken pox. Why? Because that school had a huge number of students who all claimed religious exemption from vaccination. This has got to stop. This has just got to start. I mean, there's just such a high rate of religious exemption when no religion really promotes this. No organized religion. Let's let's face it. No organized religion. Right? Jehovah's Witness, they're okay with vaccination. Roman Catholics, Jewish people, right? These religions, Muslims, no problem. Vaccinate. We realize that. The problem with chicken pox, all right, and the fact that two-thirds of these students were kindergartners, 28 of them were kindergartners, it's a varicella zoster virus that can affect the brain, causing herpes encephalitis. 
Okay, so with that, pneumonia, skin infections, blood infections, uh, it's so important to get, and, and 45 states still have religious exemption. I will say, although Connecticut has a religious exemption, uh, you've got to have a letter. You've got to have documentation that whatever religion you're in is saying specifically that your children should not be vaccinated, and that's got to be pretty hard to get. So I don't know very many people who have a religious exemption in Connecticut, and we do have a high rate of vaccination. Uh, it's so important as part of a community. Romaine lettuce. Don't eat it, okay? It, we have a big E. coli outbreak right now. It's affected 11 states. We have yet to identify the source. And E. coli produces a toxin that can make you severely ill. Usually takes two to eight days after ingestion. But it's important to know that you have to avoid this as far as food goes. Now, I... <laughs> I happened to see a tweet this morning where someone said, if you believe what you hear on the radio is fake news, just eat romaine lettuce. Okay? This is not fake news. We do not have fake news on this program. This is for your own medical care. Stay away from it. This day in medicine, November 24th, 1885, Dr. Russell Morse Wilder was born. Dr. Wilder was a medical authority on diabetes and nutrition. He was the first person to describe the symptoms of hypoglycemia, that lightheadedness, the overall weakness that you get when your blood sugar drops too low. So very interesting that he did that. He was born in 1885 when we have those symptoms that we see so often. We're going to take a short break. Then we're going to, Scott, we're going to get your question. He has a question for Dr. Malozzi already. Dr. Scott Malozzi is going to be my guest. He's an assistant professor of orthopedics and a specialist in spine surgery at the University of Connecticut. Our phone number is 860-522-9842 and 1-800-966-9842. You're listening to Healthy Rounds on WTIC News Talk 1080. We're back on Healthy Rounds. My guest today is Dr. Scott Malozzi. Dr. Malozzi is an orthopedic spine specialist. And today we're talking primarily about the neck and injuries to the cervical spine. And we have a call already that's been very patient. So uh, we're going to grab that right now. Scott, you're from Hartford. You have a question for Dr. Malozzi. Yes, I'm in speakerphone on Bluetooth for about a moment or two. I'll be in my driveway and if the sound is okay, then it'll be off. Okay. Yeah, doctor. So I've been reporting numbness to my doctor for a couple of years. We thought it might be carpal tunnel, but I was able to work through it. And then starting around August 27th, about three months ago, I had severe pain in my left arm, my chest, my back, and my neck. And uh, they determined it was a compressed nerve. I went from MRI to the stuff at C3, C4, C5. C6 and C7, the major part of the compression was at C6 and C7. So I've been in physical therapy uh, for three months, on and off, mostly on with two, three-week breaks due to insurance approval. They had me on meds that were not working. They finally put me on gabapentin, and it didn't work, and they increased the dosage. So now I have relief from the meds. Uh, when the pain started, I was at a seven, eight, nine. With the meds now, uh, 
Sometimes I'm at a zero. Usually it's throbbing one or two. Uh, it spikes to like a three, maybe uh, several times every few minutes. And then several times throughout the day, it'll spike to like a six or a seven. Um, so the relief I'm getting when I do get it, I can't tell if it's from physical therapy or from med, but I, I am supposed to be getting, uh, I guess I'm going to go for the injection. Um, um, so my plan was to get the injection, and if they don't work, maybe get surgery, and uh, I really don't know what to do. Okay. Okay. I'm going to I'm gonna disconnect you only because we're breaking up so much, and we're going to discuss it. Can you hear us okay? Yeah, I'm going to put the speaker All on right. All right, I'm going to hang up on you, and then we're going to talk a little bit about this. Scott, welcome to the show. Thank you very much. I okay. appreciate you having me. Our first listener, our first caller, pretty much summed up our program. So basically, it's a, a gentleman who was diagnosed originally with numbness in his hand, saying he, they thought he had carpal tunnel syndrome, but he had persistent neck pain and numbness that persisted. I'm assuming he had electrodiagnostic studies that said it wasn't carpal tunnel, and they focused in on the neck and a C67 pathology of some type. So what do you do in that situation when you're presented with that patient who has – he's been on gabapentin, and that seems to be helping to some degree. Uh, you know, so let's talk a little bit about conservative management, surgical management. Where do you where do you draw the line and decide it's a surgical problem from a problem that is going to respond to conservative matter management? Sure. Uh, so you know, for <clears throat> for myself and the way I trained and a lot of you know my colleagues, we really try to maximize conservative management for things like this. Um, it sounds like, you know, Scott has done a lot of that at this point, uh, several years, and really uh, the last few months it sounds like he's he's really been working hard with physical therapy as well as, um, you know, different medications. Uh, you get to a point where you, you've kind of maxed out that conservative management and we got to decide how much is this really affecting your life, number one. And day-to-day life, are you able to kind of make some activity modifications that are compatible with still enjoying your life? And that's okay, and that's enough for you to uh, to be happy and to, to calm down the symptoms. Uh, versus, you know, is this really interfering with your job or your, your social life, you know, being able to spend time with family and friends? Uh, as well as potentially even affecting, you know, if you're an athlete or if you're into, you know, more physical activities. Um, I, you know, one of the common things, and I, I learned this from a mentor along the way, but I'll often tell a patient when they ask me that question of when is surgery for me, and I tell you, really, when you kind of when you cry, uncle, right? You're, you'll sure. tell you'll tell us when things aren't working enough to the point where we got to consider a more you know, invasive option, which is a surgery. Great. Well, let's backtrack a little bit. How did you get into this business? I mean, what what's your background now that brought you to orthopedic spine surgery? Uh, and the reason I'm asking is I read an article this week that it was interesting that they felt that there were four criteria to picking a medical specialty. And the four criteria were prestige, money, passion, lifestyle. 
And those were the four things. What was interesting was the person who wrote the article became an orthopedic surgeon. So it was just an interesting art, which is a popular specialty. So what got you into this? Yeah, so, you know, when I first started, I pretty much knew from an earlier age that I wanted to do medicine of some sort, wanted to go to medical school. How early? I would say as early, you know, as early as elementary school where... I was 12. Maybe my two choices were professional baseball player and, you know, medical school and... How were you at baseball? <laughs> I was pretty good, but I wasn't. I wasn't good enough to do. Okay, it. All right. <laughs> not professionally. Because right. it's a, it's interesting that you you formulate this even as a child. I think people ignore that in children that these ideas are formed actually at a very young age. And and since the age of twelve, I, I knew I wanted to be a doctor. So it was interesting that you said that. Go yeah. ahead. Go ahead. I'm sorry. And, uh, yeah. No. Absolutely. Uh, so you know, then it became. You know, kind of what specialty, right? And these days, everybody, you know, has to kind of think about that because medicine itself has become so subspecialized, and there's very few generalists out there, uh, in really in any in any of the specialties. So, um, you know, early on, I thought orthopedic surgery, and I went into medical school thinking I'm going to be totally open minded, and I'm not going to just be one track from the start. And you went to Uh, UConn. I went to uh, New York Med. New York Med, that's right. New York Med for medical school. Um, And I'll be honest, uh, I I got involved with orthopedics early on, but I kept my mind open. And as I got through all of it and got through, you know, more than half of my med school uh, career and rotations, I realized for me personally, not only did I love orthopedics and spine and all that, but I also... Felt that the it was the people uh, and it was the 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 fun that we were able to have at work while ideally helping people out each day. So, orthopedics are generally fun people. That's, that's it's kind of like the person. Okay, <laughs> so so when we look at this, it was interesting. So when this article got written, the the person who wrote it said he accomplished prestige, uh, he accomplished money, and he was certainly passionate about it because he said. It was a great field because in the group, he, it was an academic group. He said, we had three people who were over the age of 70 still working every day in the department. So he knew it was passionate. But he said lifestyle was sacrificed uh, in many respects. Do you find that? Uh, I do. Um, you know, <laughs> and it's probably a better question for my wife. But, okay. Uh, <laughs> Uh, you know, there there's a there's a large, especially up front in in the earlier years, right? You you spend a lot of time training, you spend, you know, you miss holidays, you miss family events, and uh, orthopedics and spine surgery, uh, much like you know, there's pl- tons of specialties out there that are very, you know, I would say not lifestyle friendly at times. Sure, um, and you learn to. Spend your spend your limited free time you do have. You you do your very best to spend it with the people you want to spend it with, and uh, you know take care of your your life, so to say. But you know it helps when you're doing a specialty or doing a job that you enjoy, right? If you spent all that time away from home and away from things you your hobbies and you're doing something you don't enjoy, uh, it becomes you know almost impossible. So all right. All right. We're going to get ready to take a short break, and we're going to come back with Dr. Scott Malozzi. We're going to be talking a lot 
now about neck pain, uh, the anatomy of the spinal cord, uh, things that you can do to really help yourself uh, and avoid surgical intervention. And, and that's, you know, you want to ask a spine surgeon those questions. So we're going to have him here. The other thing I wanted to make sure people had, and especially Scott, if you'd like to make an appointment with Dr. Malozzi, the telephone number to reach him is 860-679-4719. That's the telephone number for his office at the Orthopedic Spine Center at the University of Connecticut. The phone number's here, 860-522-9842 and 1-800-966-9842. You're listening to Healthy Rounds on WTIC News Talk 1080. We're back on Healthy Rounds. I'm your host, Dr. Anthony Alessi. And uh, today we are with Dr. Scott Malozzi. Dr. Malozzi is an orthopedic spine specialist. And we're talking about the neck and cervical spine. And it looks like we have more questions. So we're going to grab a question from Steve in Torrington. Steve, you're on the air. Yes, I have I have a question. Um, I, I am fused from... C3 through C7. Um, I've had operations, three operations over the past 25 years. Um, my last operation was uh, a year ago, and I was fused at that time from uh, C6 to C7. And what I've developed right after that operation is occipital neuralgia. Um, I've, I've tried nerve blocks. I had a, a C2, C3 facet joint injection. Uh, I've tried Cymbalta, I've tried physical therapy, and I'm wondering, is that a typical complication of uh, fusion surgery or and what you'd recommend? It's a great question, actually, for me, um, okay. because uh, <laughs> I do treat occipital neuralgia. And yes, it is fairly common to see in people with cervical fusion. Okay. So, But often the nerve blocks work. So I'm surprised. Did you have any improvement with the ner- with the cervical block? Well, only for 24 hours. Um, okay. Um, I mean, this is not really headaches. It's head pain. Right. It's a sharp shooting pain that radiates from your neck to the front of your head. Uh, it can be it can be burning a burning pain. Uh, not, I guess it it it's worse with when I bend my head down. So I have to kind of okay. keep my head up. Okay. Scott, what do you think? I mean, I do tend to see it more in people who have had extensive fusion surgery, uh, but this almost sounds a little bit different. Sure. Uh, so did you – have any of your surgeries been from the through the back of your neck, or were they all through the front? They were all uh, anterior. All through the front. Okay. And, and the the, uh, the MRI of the upper cervical spine is not really showing um, anything bad, we'll say, at uh, C2, C3. Okay. Um, you know, it's uh, we. This does happen. Uh, I wouldn't say it's you know the, a, a very common thing to see with this, but uh, not. It's certainly not unheard of. Um, you know, surgically, there's not. You know, there's very few times where I would say a surgery is you know a, a great option for treating this because. Mostly because we were so successful, I think, with the non-operative uh, interventions, like Dr. Alessi mentioned, such as the the nerve blocks. Um, okay. The uh, in, in terms of you know what are surgically you know once in a while certain surgeries we actually we actually cut that nerve root intentionally. Correct. Um, when when especially when we're going from the back and it's sure. more of a preventative issue. So 
you know, what do we what do we lose when we cut that nerve? It's really a sensory nerve, meaning it doesn't provide any significant strength or you know muscle function. It's more sensation. So you know, you cut that nerve and you tell patients you're you're gonna unfortunately have a little sure. bit of numbness. But sure. I, you know, I think going towards the, you know, maybe even repeating a nerve block is a, not a bad idea, especially because you did get even short-term relief. But I'll, sure. I've know. tried four, okay. actually. It just doesn't last. Well, let me ask you a question, Steve. Have yeah. you seen a, a neurologist who specializes in headache? Uh, I have not. I, that's your next step. Okay. Because I think the diagnosis is in jeopardy here. I, I think it's really in question whether or not this is occipital neuralgia. And there are different approaches than just a nerve block. So there are several neurologists in the Hartford area. Dr. Tanya Bilchik has been a guest on our show. She runs the Hartford Headache Center in East uh, in East Hartford. Okay. And I would highly recommend her and making an appointment to see her because uh, I think your diagnosis is questionable, and she would have the best approach. Okay. All right. I'll give her Good a luck. Try. All right. Good Thank luck. You. All right. Bye. Yeah, bye. Uh, interesting question. But since we're on the topic of cervical fusion, can we talk a little bit about that? Because that's a pretty, you know, Steve had a pretty extensive fusion. Um, can we tell our listeners what is a cervical fusion? Sure. So uh, interestingly, when we talk about surgery with patients and I tell them, you know, I recommend a fusion, of, you know, cervical or lumbar, uh, it's it's actually kind of misleading because we're not actually, we're what we're doing surgically is we're preparing uh, a fusion, and then we depend on your body to actually do the work of fusing the the two bones together. So, at each level in your spine uh, and in your neck, you have uh, a disc between levels. So, when we talk about levels in your spine in the office, we talk say, for instance, you have a C six C seven issue. Uh, that means there's a C six bone, a vertebrae, and then a C seven vertebrae below it, and in between is a disc. And that is one motion level of your spine. And that allows a little bit of, you know, flexing and extension of your neck as well as turning and rotating your neck. So a fusion is actually removing the motion from that from that segment. So there's various ways to do it. But in the end, you know, in the neck in particular, uh, essentially what we're doing is we're, we're removing that disc and usually inserting some sort of a spacer, whether it's metal or bone or plastic, and, and there's it's kind of dealer's choice how you do it, um, and then some bone graft. And you're, you're depending on your body to fuse across that disc and eliminate motion. Uh, and the thought is that motion in a degenerated or arthritic spine uh, can actually increase things like bone spurs and uh scar tissue and things that can actually provide problems like pinching nerves, for instance. So by fusing it, you theoretically will eliminate the motion and the ability to regenerate uh, problematic things like that. You know, when we think of fusion and we think of limited motion of the neck, but certainly people go back to playing high levels of sport. I mean, Peyton Manning had a fusion of his neck. We see athletes who have fusions of their neck. So it doesn't necessarily have to impact your lifestyle. But would you say that's among the more radical surgeries you have to do for someone with neck pain? It is. Uh, you know, and fusion is, there's there's few things I would tell you in the neck that we can do 
surgically without a fusion. And the reason is in order to access the, you know, a nerve that's pinched or a spinal cord that is having pressure on it, you typically do have to remove the disc. And by removing the disc, can't we can't just leave you like that because then you have an unstable neck and we do we 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 usually will do a fusion um a one level fusion in the neck uh more often than not patients do not notice any functional uh difference in terms of their range of motion um by losing one level of motion in your neck uh you know theoretically you may lose about 10 degrees of uh, flexion and extension, meaning kind of tilting your head forward and backwards. Uh, but in a level that's already been causing you problems and likely is actually limiting your motion just because of that anyway, because of pain, because of arthritis, uh, I'll tell you, one, two-level fusion in the neck tends to be very well tolerated in the sense of uh, range of motion. I think most patients don't don't have any significant issues. And like you mentioned, to the point where some high-level athletes go back and do, uh, you know, do their job at a, continuing to do it at a very high level. So, Scott, why do you operate from the front? I know you asked Steve, do, did you have your operation from the front or the back? What makes you decide? Because I, I most that I see now are done from anterior, from the front. Uh, what makes you decide whether to do it from anterior or posterior? A couple things that help us decide is, you know, and a lot of this is based on. Uh, your your MRI or your imaging and how uh, where exactly the uh, the problem is. If the problem is from the front and it's one or two or sometimes even three levels, uh, we often will will do it from the front of the neck because patients tolerate it much better. Uh, it's a it's an easier operation to recover from. Um, you know, there certainly there's risk to to any way we the, that we do these surgeries, but uh, there's less muscle that gets disrupted in the front of the neck. You're not worried about uh, this significant dissection through really big, strong muscles that we have in the back of the neck, and it tends to be a very painful operation from the back uh, as opposed to the front. So if we can approach things from the front, we we often will. Um, but that being said, there are times, especially if you have lots of uh, a multiple level issue in your neck or if you have uh, pressure from the back and the front uh, on the spinal cord or something like that, then sometimes we, we don't have a better choice than going from the back. But the front, the reason is it tends to be uh, an easier recovery for the patient. So. And that's absolutely significant so that people can recover more quickly. Uh, we're chatting today with Dr. Scott Malozzi. Dr. Malozzi is an orthopedic spine specialist at the University of Connecticut. You can reach Dr. Malozzi at 860-679-4719. We're going to take a short break. Then we're going to get back and talk a little bit more about conservative measures. What do you do for whiplash? Should you be seeing a chiropractor, physical therapist? Who would help you the most? You're listening to Healthy Rounds on WTIC News Talk 1080. We're back on Healthy Rounds for our final segment. A little bit later on, I will be on the sideline for UConn football's final game. Um, and it's been a tough season for the University of Connecticut football, but it's part of rebuilding. And I think that's great. I think that's 
what sports should be about in terms of uh, building young careers. So um, I will be down there, and uh, hopefully the weather will, weather will stay a little bit warm. My guest is Dr. Scott Malozzi. Scott, we talked a little bit about surgical intervention for the cervical spine. Uh, what about conservative treatment? You know, one of the things we hear about a lot of times is whiplash, right? This sudden movement forward and backward of the neck. What should people do? If, say you've been in a car accident or you've fallen and had whiplash. Uh, what are the best measures to take in that situation? And, and what is actually going on in the neck with a whiplash type of injury? Yeah, that's a, that's a good question. Uh, so neck pain's a challenging issue because much like low back pain and things like that, it's, believe it or not, you know, almost everybody at some point in their lifetime is going to experience something like that, right? So whiplash is, and mus is a muscular type of injury where, you know, you stretch and strain the muscles so much that you uh, you actually injure them and it can be very severe and it can be associated with other things you can end up with uh, you know a disc problem because of it but just typical whiplash is a frustrating thing to treat because there's no there's really no surgical intervention for it meaning some of these things drag on for a long time and they can be very frustrating not to have a, a just a final solution that patients you know can can look for so i think the best thing to do with a, a muscular type pain or a whiplash injury number 1 is you know sometimes a short period of immobilizing your neck in a in a brace or in a small you know a, a soft neck collar can be very helpful i think the most uh one of the worst things you can do is stay in one of those collars or braces for a long period of time. Um, if you don't have a true, uh, an unstable fracture or an injury that we're letting heal, trying it for a week or two, I think, is a very reasonable thing. And then starting to quickly get out of the brace and starting things such as physical therapy um, and stretching and just trying to work through. Uh, you know, the the injury that you had. I think the longer you stay immobilized, the stiffer you get, the more tight the muscles get, and the more chance you have of having this kind of endless cycle of uh, of pain. So physical therapy is important uh, fairly early on to try to loosen up your muscles and stretch yourself out. Um, and at the same time, because of this injury, you've stretched and you've inflamed the muscles. Things can uh, be very; it can be very beneficial for you uh, to have a a period where you take an anti-inflammatory. Um, and these are medications such as uh, you know Advil or ibuprofen, Motrin, and the reason for that is to try to just knock out the inflammation that is causing a lot of this pain. Um, and this can be a frustrating process because it's it's not often a, a two to three week solution that it'll go away. But I think being persistent with therapy and stretching, and you know, when you get a physical therapy prescription, it's from a physician. It's almost always, you know, one, two, three times a week for six weeks. But that's important to go and do that. But the the real goal is getting them to teach you what to do at home so that you can do it every day. Um, and trying to stretch out those muscles, break that cycle of spasm and inflammation, and uh, really trying to avoid things like surgery. So when that happens, we're going to get to the question. Chiropractic um, and the use of chiropractic in treating the neck. 
Do you advocate for it or not when somebody comes in? So uh, um, I don't I, I don't advocate for or against it. I'll be honest. I think there's uh, much like uh, doctors and teachers and dentists and everybody. You know, there's good ones and bad ones. Um, so I think the good chiropractors are the ones who focus more on getting a patient active and mobilized and. Uh, you know, really getting you moving and, and almost getting you to do it at home by yourself and get you stretching and uh, working out the muscles. Things such as uh, manipulations of the neck um, is something that I typically uh, will advise patients to be very careful with and uh, potentially avoid it because there are some complications that uh, that can happen. And while they're rare, they do happen and they can be pretty devastating um, and I know uh, Dr. Alessi actually sees probably uh, these patients more often than, than I would afterwards if something like that does happen. So like anything else, I think there's a role for it where if it's helping, uh, I'm okay with it. I, I certainly think there is a role for them uh, at times, um, but just be careful uh, how aggressive you get with it. Okay, let's move on. Let's talk a little bit about the future. So when we're looking at people with neck problems, we've talked about fusion, discectomy, um, people having epidural steroid injections, uh, which has been a controversial topic um, because it helps helps some people, doesn't help others. And when you look at the data on it, at least for the low back, it's questionable. So let me touch on that. What do you do? Do you advocate for epidural steroid injections for people who have neck pain? It's, it depends on really what uh, what the generator of your pain is. If you have just neck pain and no pinched nerves or anything like that, I think epidural injections, which are around the nerves and the spinal cord, uh, probably have a limited uh, benefit or potential benefit. Um, for patients who do have a, a, a herniated disc and a pinched nerve and things like that, I think it can be very helpful uh for a couple of reasons. Number one, hopefully it's therapeutic, meaning it gets you better and it makes your symptoms better. Um, the other thing it does is it could be very diagnostically helpful for, you know, myself and for the surgeon and uh, the sense that even if you only get better for a short period of time, whether it's a week, two weeks, uh, then it's it tells us that there's a good chance that if you get to the point of surgery, we can make you better. And that, you know, you've responded to a treatment to that specific area uh, already. Um, so, you know, there's, I think the benefit uh, of doing, you know, multiple injections, epidural injections over years, and, you know, they last, oh, it lasts a month each time I get one, probably not very beneficial at that point. But if you can get three, four months of relief or even, permanent relief, then I, I'm, I'm really all for it. I think it's a reasonable step before surgery. What about the future? I mean, and, and actually, even from the standpoint, I mean, you take care of patients who end up quadriplegic, traumatic injuries where you have to fuse the neck um, and, and just to stabilize the neck. But what do you think the future is for cervical spine surgery? I think uh, there's a couple, a couple paths uh, in the future. Number one is probably as we as we learn more and as we get better at te different techniques uh, and invent new techniques, it's becoming less invasive, uh, meaning easier recovery, 
less hospitalization, less risk of complications, uh, as well as uh, we talk about motion preserving. So we want to do right like right now we do a lot of fusions, uh, and over time we've learned that uh, there there's a certain patient population, and it's small, but a certain patient population who could really benefit from, for instance, a disc replacement in the neck as opposed to a, a, a fusion or an ACDF. Um, so I think learning what the body, uh, how to make the body better, but also more like its normal self is important as well. And then you mentioned spinal cord injuries, and one of the biggest things with spinal cord injury right now is recovery. Uh, and We've learned a lot over the years, and we're not there yet, but there are tons of people working on stem cells and different things to help the nerves and the spinal cord heal. And I think we all have our fingers crossed that in the near future that that's that's where we're headed and we can actually offer some good relief for that. But I want to caution people, we're not there yet because there are a lot of people out there hacking, you know, they're hawking uh, the miracle stem cell, right? And it's just not there yet, but we're Correct. seeing a lot of it. Scott, I want to thank you. Uh, thank you for coming on the show today and uh, being such a good resource. And more importantly, I want to thank you for joining our department at the University of Connecticut and bringing your skill to our community. Thank you. Thank you very much. I appreciate it. Next week on Healthy Rounds, we are going to have another live show, and we have a series of them coming up. So we'll be on the air, provided we don't get bumped by football or something else. And we've got some good shows lined up. We've been, we want to get back to talking a little bit with Dr. Mary Gina Ratchford. We're going to get her on to talk a little bit about more about eye surgery. I've been hearing a lot of things about cataract surgery I want to discuss with her. Many thanks to our studio producer, Mike Olko. Jeff Chandler is in charge of sales and marketing for Healthy Rounds. Next up on WTIC is Garden Talk with Len. Until next week, this is Dr. Anthony Alessi. Please stay healthy. This has been Healthy Rounds with Dr. Anthony Alessi, sponsored by St. Francis Hospital and Medical Center, Ratchford Eye Center, Covaris, and the Connecticut State Medical Society. Be sure to tune in next Saturday morning at 11 for more Healthy Rounds on WTIC, News Talk 1080, and WTIC.com.